in 2005, the Supreme Court of Canada, in a 4-3 decision, found that the Quebec Health Insurance Act and the Quebec Hospital Insurance Act uh, constituted a Section 7 charter violation that because of long wait times that patients were facing, the prohibition on private medical insurance violated that section of the charter uh, that provides us the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. So an important principle was established in that ruling. So it was surprising to see last week that the Supreme Court refused to hear an appeal that spoke to many of these, these same issues and these same themes. Uh, this has been a now 14-year legal battle about Canada's public health monopoly and bans on private insurance and extra billing. So it was a challenge that, uh, again, went through the courts, but last week the Supreme Court of Canada announced that they would not hear this appeal. So very much uh, coming as disappointment, I think, to, to a lot of people, including our guest, who has been at the center of this debate for a very long time. Dr. Brian Day is an orthopedic surgeon, health researcher, and medical director of the Canby Surgery Center in Vancouver. Also previously president of the Canadian Medical Association, and he was at the center of this case. Dr. Day joins us on the line here this afternoon. Great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, disappointment for sure. I would imagine maybe some surprise last week. What, what was your reaction when you heard that the court was not going to hear this appeal? Well, I was very surprised. But, you know, what, what what's uh, interesting is I've heard from numerous legal scholars, including um, Supreme, you know, former Supreme Court of Canada and appeal court and, and judges, um, that they were shocked that they wouldn't hear it because, as you uh, said, um, in 2005, the same court ruled that Quebecers who are suffering on long wait lists have the right to extricate themselves from those from that suffering through legal through le- legal private health insurance. And so, what these what the Supreme Court of Canada has done now is essentially say yes we we believe Quebecers should have um, rights that we aren't even prepared to listen to arguments as to whether other Canadians should have the same rights that we gave Quebecers and um, and and I think to put this in context um, there there is only one country on the on the planet Earth where private health insurance is unlawful. And that is, um, you know, we're in it, Canada. Every other country, even the authoritarian countries, um, allow legal um, options and legal access to private insurance if the government is not providing the care in a a timely manner or not not at all. I mean, our our plaintiffs, we had five patient plaintiffs in our legal challenge. And one, for example, a young teenage boy paralyzed for life after waiting over two years for a spine operation that should have been done within weeks or months. And um, these stories are now, you know, going to, I, I guess that the, the court has decided that this is okay. And, but what's also, to my mind, somewhat outrageous is the judges that refuse to hear this 
are legally allowed to do what they're not considering whether other citizens should have, have the same uh, legal rights. In other words, judges um, are federal appointees and therefore um, exempt from the very laws that forbid private um, access to health care. So I think big picture, this was very similar to the Chowley case, maybe with, with some differences, but uh, I think essentially the same principle. W- were there any notable differences here? Are we pretty much talking about the, you know, the same kinds of argument? Well, the, the number one thing we were seeking is the right to obtain private health insurance um, where, for citizens who, um, who are basically denied access to health care in a timely manner in the public system. That's exactly what the Quebec argument was. So private health insurance was legalized in Quebec in June of 2005. Uh, we, we were fighting for the same legal rights for Canadians who don't live in Quebec. The, the other thing that might shock, um, shock many Canadians is that if you go to another, so, so I mean, a few months ago, I, operate, I, I was operating at our clinic uh, on, on patients from other provinces, quite a few patients from other provinces, mm-hmm. and other provinces were operating on patients from British Columbia. So, so the residents of a province in Canada have less rights than visitors to that province and non-residents have. Again, something reminiscent, if you like, of the former Soviet Union, because that, that, that to me is also outrageous, that, that we, you in your province, we in our province, have less rights under the law than, than non-residents have within, their own, within your province. Now, those on the other side of this, it includes BC's health minister. There's some other advocacy groups in, in Alberta. There's the group Friends of Medicare, who all applauded the Supreme Court here. And, they, you know, they made the argument that, you know, allowing this would lead to what they describe as two-tier health care, that this would ultimately be bad for, for public health care. What do you say to those arguments? Well, in the Commonwealth Fund uh, um, study, survey, um, based on Canadian information, uh, the CAIHI, which is Canadian Institute for Health Information data that was supplied, um, in other words, to the Commonwealth Fund by the Canadian government, and we came in 10th alongside 10 countries that have universal health care in terms of equity, in terms of access, in, case, in terms of overall performance. These countries all have universal health care, developed countries like Switzerland, Sweden, Germany. And yet, we were the most expensive. So that's what I say to them. And then these groups, yes, there are groups, they call themselves a group, for instance, Canadian Doctors for Medicare. Um, their executives have literally been to our clinic and had private surgery. They're, they're fighting, they're, they're in, they were in court arguing that other people shouldn't have that right. So where does this leave us then? I mean, you know, we're, we're stuck with the status quo, it feels like. Well, basically what the court has... Th- this is a political decision. And, you know, we talk about the U.S. court being politicized, the Supreme Court in the U.S. Ours is even more politicized. So the fact that they don't want to hear this, as I say, it has shocked judges and lawyers across the country. And, um, and that... And, and the reason is they are simply afraid of the issue. 
and they are you know they they are also let's face it employees of the government but and don't want to cross their employer i mean it's as simple and and straightforward as that but i think to reiterate something that perhaps i mean to me it's very shocking and it should be to every canadian is that there's no country in the world countries like afghanistan where the taliban are and china and you know, these authoritarian countries around the world do not none of the communist countries outlaw private health insurance but in canada we do and we have a, a greatly underperforming um, health system the most expensive in terms of what what is spent of all developed countries that have universal health care mm-hmm. although i guess we should not i mean you know what the supreme court is is essentially saying here is that laws prohibiting private insurance are not unconstitutional but they're not mandating that we have those laws right so there is still the question of political will we could still see change if there's political determination to do it couldn't we well, it's it's known. Healthcare is known as the th- third rail, like the electrical yes. rail of of politics. And the politicians, you know, I was in a debate three or four years ago with a health minister of, uh, in in uh, back east um, who um, who was advocating on behalf of the Medicare system. And then afterwards, um, he came up to me and he said, "Off the record, every health minister in the country wants you to win this lawsuit." Because we're just we we just don't have the courage to go forward and change, introduce the changes that are necessary. But I mean, we have to face the reality that countries with social programs far greater than ours, countries like Sweden and Denmark and and uh, and so on, Holland, Belgium, they all have a little bit of competition, non-state competition. We have a monopoly in the. In the delivery and funding of healthcare, and I cannot think of any monopoly that benefits the consumer of the service or the product. I, I just can't think of one, and that's simple, you know, logical economics. That that we, when we we know, again from established data. Well, I mean, it, Canada has 14 ministries of health for a population of 36 million. Germany, with almost two and a half times the population, has one. Guess where the money, guess why we're spending so much money? This massive bureaucracy. We have 11 public health bureaucrats for every public health bureaucrat that Germany has. And yet they have minimal wait lists and they spend less and um, and they have a hybrid um, system. So we, um, you know... This is not about the wealthy, as you, as I'm sure you are aware. Wealthy Canadians never suffer. Politicians never suffer. They go down to the states. This is about ordinary Canadians who might have, say, extended health that covers, actually, covers things that other countries with universal systems already cover in their public system. But we have extended private health premiums and insurance for things like prescription drugs and physiotherapy, dentistry, ambulances, all of which are covered in most universal country, countries. Those extra, those insurance companies, all they'd have to do is expand their coverage so that any patient waiting longer than the maximum acceptable safe time could utilize their extended health 
to access healthcare. This is um, this is the way it, it should be done. And and to me, it's astounding that the Supreme Court of Canada's judges, as I to reiterate, all of whom are allowed to access private healthcare. I've we've received payment from the federal government for judges treated at our clinic. They are all exempt, and they're saying. We don't want to hear whether other Canadians should have the same rights we have or the same rights that we gave to Quebecers in 2005. But in terms of the, you know, the innovation that's possible within these confines, we're seeing in Alberta, in Ontario, where there's an, at least an attempt to make use of these private clinics and the resources uh, that exist to contract out some of these surgeries to try to reduce these wait times. What do you make of those kinds of approaches? Well, I think they're a good start, you know. But um, you know, back in uh, back in Ontario, the Premier Ford got into, you know, got a lot of criticism for for that. But it's something our NDP government in British Columbia began in the 1990s. But uh, this is again speaks to <clears throat> to the lack of the lack of consistency in in, in uh, on the part of those who criticise him because. The NDP government in BC has been doing that since the mid '90s. There's, there's nothing. Uh, every family doctor's office, virtually in Canada, is a private office that is funded with government funding. And on that, in that vein, there is no reason for low-income Canadians why the government should be funding the premiums so that people can have this safety valve in Australia. 8 million, you know, they have a population smaller than ours, and it's a country with about the same or even a a lower population density. 8 million Australians have private health insurance funded because they are low income. The the government funds their insurance premiums. And so this is not about, you know, this this is just something that we need to learn from countries that do better than us. We we are ranked last of ten developed countries that have universal health care. And you know, my basic simplistic approach is why aren't we looking at what the top two or three ranked countries are doing and learning from the methods? That's what you do you know, if you were a hockey coach and you were at the bottom mm-hmm. of the league, you'd be looking at what the top teams do and try and at least um, learn from their methods, but we we don't do that. We stick with the same old system, and the wait lists are dangerous. Millions of Canadians are waiting. The Supreme Court of Canada in Chaoli said that Canadians were suffering, you know, that's the 2005 decision, suffering and dying on wait lists. Our BC, you know, we lost uh, the we lost the definitive ability to get private insurance at the BC Appeal Court. But the Appeal Court judges all agreed that BC residents were suffering and dying on waitlists. They overturned the lower court, uh, rather the Supreme Court judge, was overturned in his decision, and they said there's no question patients in BC are dying on waitlists. And... um, and the Supreme Court of Canada has basically, the judges who listened, who considered this, have basically said, that's okay. Let patients suffer without recourse. 
let them let them deteriorate. And last in 2021, over 11,500 Canadians died on public wait lists in Canada. They have no, and they had no legal method to extricate themselves from that pain and suffering within their own province. Well, the Supreme Court has had its say. Politicians, though, still have some say over these important issues. We'll leave it there for now. Dr. Brian Day, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All the best. There you go. That's Dr. Brian Day, uh, orthopedic surgeon, health researcher, medical director of the Canby Surgery Center in Vancouver, previously president of the Canadian Medical Association. And he was at the center of this challenge, along with plaintiffs, other plaintiffs, who themselves had their health impacted negatively by these lengthy wait times and and by these prohibitions on other options. Welcome to this hour of the program, folks. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Tuesday afternoon. Much more still to get to this afternoon. Let's talk about all of the renewed interest in the moon and returning to the moon. Of course, we had just last week uh, the announcement of the crew for the Artemis II mission. Canadian going to be a part of that. Uh, And so this crew is going to uh, return to the moon to orbit the moon. But this is part of uh, NASA's plan in cooperation with the Canadian Space Agency and other organizations to to return to the moon and to do so in a more permanent capacity. And it's not just these government space agencies. Earlier this month, uh, SpaceX announced uh, plans to land a uh, SUV-sized rover on the moon uh, sometime in 2026. So there's a lot of private interest as well in returning to the moon. And there's also the question then of who will be able to go to the moon because this starts to get into the realm of opening things up potentially to the public. Uh, Could a citizen at some point uh, book a trip to the moon, travel to the moon? That's where things are going, I think. You know, the idea of uh, this uh, next big tourism frontier being the moon now right now uh it's not realistic and in the short term even once it becomes maybe somewhat more realistic there would be a pretty massive price tag associated with that but it seems like things are ultimately going in that direction joining us to talk more about all of this very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon uh chris lewicki is a former uh, nasa engineer he is the uh, co-founder and ceo of the company gravity lab chris great to have you with us here today welcome to the program Great to be here, Rob. Tell us a bit more, first of all, about Gravity Lab and and some of the work you're doing kind of in this realm. Yeah, Gravity Lab is a company who is looking forward to the future and imagining a time when we're going to have lots of people living, working, playing, uh, doing everything that we've done all of our history, but doing it in space. And, you know, we did not uh, evolve in zero gravity. Our biology still depends on gravity. Uh, Gravity Lab is... Uh, interested in helping figure out, you know, what's the right level? Do you know you need eight hours of sleep? Well, you always also need eight hours of G's along with your eight hours of yeah. G's. Well, that's the thing. I mean, getting to space is, is difficult, so there's all of that to overcome. But then, yes, there's the whole reality of being in space or being on the moon and what that does to our bodies. How would we function? So this is really important component to, to understand in all of this. Yeah, absolutely. And what we've learned from decades of going to space and staying there, uh, we've had people who've been in space for more than a year straight. Uh, what we're finding out is that, you know, zero gravity is kind of bad for your health. Uh, 
And it, it's, it's a permanent change that it causes on your body because your body adapts to its environment. Uh, you know, we've done this not only all our lives, but, you know, all of our evolution. Um, so if we, if we really want to be able to stay in space long term, we need to, you know, understand if we can live and raise families and live out our lives in anything other than Earth's gravity. We, even though we've been to the moon, we don't actually understand this long term about the surface of the moon because uh, all the men who've been there only spent a few few days there. <laughs> yeah. You can't you can't learn too much about biology in just a few days. Right. Uh, so where are we at now? Because we're we're at the point where there's a isn't noted renewed interest in in returning to the moon. We, we're also in an era where we have seen, you know, private citizens, ultra rich private citizens, mind you, sort of you know able to to access space flights so we're, we're getting closer to that right where the idea of traveling into space is not just for astronauts working for a government agency yeah absolutely and i think you know it's important to remember we're, we're on a trajectory of transportation that that has existed for all of human history you know it, it wasn't the case that you know we would be able to have technology and cross a continent uh, and then, you know, we evolved a variety of things to help us with that over time. And then we figured out how to cross oceans uh, with with boat technology. We don't think about it as technology today, but it was certainly a breakthrough in its time. Uh, and then come aircraft and rockets and spacecraft. Yeah. And, you know, it, uh, aircrafts, you know, didn't exist 150 years ago. And, and now most people, uh, you know, get on an airplane and certainly, at least once in their lives, many people do it every week. Uh, it's become quite ordinary, and it used to be a luxury experience. So space travel is on that trajectory, uh, and it's it's uncertain, you know, how fast it's going to change. But as we speak, you know, there is a rover or lander headed to the moon right now that's going to land next month. Um, SpaceX is about to launch its Starship vehicle, which is uh, NASA's next pick for landing people on the moon. Uh, and we have a Japanese entrepreneur who is going to take uh, a bunch of artists and creators with him on a Starship flight around the moon uh, before the end of the decade. So uh, this isn't something that's going to happen. It's already happening. And it's just a question of when it's going to get down to you being able to have experiences like this. Right. So are we talking, you know, within our lifetimes, within this century? What, what are you anticipating? Uh, well, I certainly believe it's going to be within most everybody's lifetimes. I, this is something, you know, we saw aviation going from being invented to being a part of the postal system uh, in just a couple of decades. So I think, you know, people might be able to have a once-in-a-lifetime trip uh, to space. Maybe it'll be a suborbital trip where you can go up and see the curvature of the Earth and the darkness of space and experience weightlessness. Maybe it'll be a high-altitude balloon experience where you don't get the zero-g part, but you do get the amazing view. Or maybe you'll go in orbit, like the crew of Inspiration4 did uh, uh, two years ago, and you can watch the Netflix special about that. So I think this is something that, you know, in the next 10 years, everyone will know someone who has been into space. Uh, and then in the next 20 years, you know, it might be a good friend who has been the one who's been into space. What do you see as the appeal beyond, you know, joining a select group? Because right now, you know, those who have been on the moon is a very select group. Even those who have been in space is still a pretty select group. So there's that appeal there. But once it becomes more ubiquitous, once it becomes, as you say, that we all kind of know somebody who's gone into space, that element 
isn't there. But w- what is going to be the appeal, you suspect? I think it's all the aspects that have us continue to travel. You know, even though you can see the Instagram feed and see better pictures than anyone's ever taken, you know, than you would take if you went there. Some people go to a vacation spot and they go back every year because they enjoy being there. They enjoy the view. They enjoy the environment. Uh, and space will, of course, be a much more novel and exciting space, uh, environment to be in uh, because of the changes in gravity, you know, being able to see our plan- planet, being able to experience the wonder and awe and the preciousness of, you know, the spaceship Earth that we have all been on all our lives. So I think it's, you know, essentially it's all the same things that we travel for today, but there's going to be a brand new element that's going to be present in space travel that you're not going to be able to get any other way. We've seen humans walk on the moon and everything that went into that, but if we're talking about some kind of an established presence on the moon, what are the obstacles to that or what kind of technology do we need where people could you know spend a few days or a few weeks or or longer on the moon well yeah the good news is all the technology exists uh it's just not very widely distributed and it's not very cheap yet uh but you can you know take a chip trip to the bottom of the marion trench or you can go visit the titanic you know if you have a of a few tens of thousands of dollars that's yeah. a trip that's available to you and quite dangerous you know in terms of the environment or the pressures but we designed a vehicle for that so it's the same type of thing we design vehicles that get into space or design vehicles that get to the moon and you know just like uh maybe if you go uh to the northern parts of the planet to see the northern lights you know you certainly would die of exposure if you stayed out all night but we we have uh, technology to keep you warm and fed Uh, and entertained and, you know, we'll have similar technology on the surface of the moon. I think where it really starts to change is where we have the destination, you know, where you can go to the International Space Station. You have a place that has everything that you need uh, to keep safe uh, and to, you know, create all your creature comforts. And we'll probably have that on the moon, uh, you know, in the next 10, 10 to 20 years where that destination will be there uh, as a as a place that, you know, gets bigger and better and more developed and more comfortable and more affordable with every new visitor who arrives. Now that we have private companies involved in this is not exclusively the domain of government space agencies. That certainly, I think, accelerated a lot of this. How much of a game changer has has that been? Uh, It's actually pretty transformational. Uh, You know, the thing with government projects and government contracting, uh, is there isn't a lot of incentive to save money. There's not a lot of incentive to try new things or innovate or take big risks. You know, you, you want the project to work. Uh, you want to make good use of the taxpayer dollar. Uh, and we still do lots of innovative and challenging things, but putting that into a, you know, a private sector thing, uh, you know, that is where we are taking more risks. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things we've seen with with SpaceX as an innovator is they've had a lot of failures. You know, they've blown up lots of rockets before they, they've now uh, successfully landed a rocket more than a hundred times, which is more than most companies have launched rockets. But when they started that, you know, they blew a dozen of them up. Uh, And that's just kind of a different mentality. Of course, you can't do that with people on board, uh, but there are parts that we can, we can make much more cost effective by developing them in a commercial mindset in a modern way. 
Really fascinating stuff. We'll leave it there. Much more at gravitylabspace.com and uh, also your website, chrislewicki.com. Chris, great to tap into your insight on all of this. Thank you so much for joining us here today. You're welcome. Thanks. All the best, Chris. Take care. There you go. That's uh, Chris Lewicki, former NASA engineer. He's the uh, co-founder and CEO at Gravity Lab. And so they're doing a lot of work on, you know, what's it going to take to make it more feasible for humans to go into space, spend time in space, or even potentially at some point on the surface of the moon. It's incredible to think, you know, what uh, the future might hold, but just to look at where we're at right now and how quickly all of this has accelerated. Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite fascinating. All right, a lot more to get to here this afternoon. You can reach us, 403-974-8255. You have the resource. If this were an option now, like, would you? Would you want to do that? You know, I saw an interview with, with Chris Lewicki somewhere where he kind of compared going to the moon to, like, climbing Everest. It's not for everybody. It's not, you know, a, a resort kind of vacation. Like, it's a different kind of experience. But it's also something that you can say you did. The science around black holes is fascinating, and it has come a long way, right? We once thought of black holes as something that theoretically should exist. And, of course, now we know that they do because we've detected them, we've measured them, we've even been able to see them. Even still, though, this latest discovery, which was caught accidentally by the Hubble Space Telescope, is is really, really cool. Uh, This is essentially a supermassive black hole that has gone rogue, or you might call it a runaway black hole. So this black hole is leaving a trail of destruction. This weighs, like, this is big. Uh, As one article notes, as much as 20 million suns. And we've got a 200,000 light-year-long contrail of of newborn stars uh, that this uh, black hole is, is ripping through. So given what we know about black holes, this, this does still seem like unusual behavior. So how was this discovered? What are we learning from this? And what is this black hole doing? Well, very pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this afternoon the uh, astronomy professor who kind of stumbled across this remarkable discovery. Uh, Peter Van Dogum is a professor of astronomy and physics at Yale University and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Uh, Professor Van Dogum, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, So tell us a bit more about how how you got involved in this and how you kind of stumbled across then this this remarkable discovery. Yeah, it was um, a complete uh, coincidence or, or serendipity. Um, we had taken images with the Hubble Space Telescope for a completely unrelated purpose. And uh, as I was looking through the image, just just for fun, really, to see what was there, you know, in the background and, and around the object that we were interested in, there was this weird little streak. And uh, this streak turned out to be, when we investigated it further, uh, this amazing trail of newborn stars that, that we think was created by this, this black hole. Well, explain how, you know, how do black holes then contribute to the formation of, of new stars in their wake? Right, yeah, it sounds a bit counterintuitive, right, that, that they should swallow stuff rather than, than right. create things. But um, what it is is because they are so massive and, and this black hole is moving so fast, 
it compresses gas that, that lives around galaxies. So it, it's moving through space. There's nothing out there except hydrogen gas. And so what hydrogen gas does when it gets compressed is it likes to form stars. And so what we think is happening is that the interaction of this very massive object that's moving very fast with gas that lives around galaxies creates this trail. Um, so it didn't actually, that has been predicted uh, 50 years ago, uh, but uh, nobody paid much attention at the time because nobody thought that we could ever observe that. Um, but it looks like we're finally seeing what uh, what was expected basically uh, already back then. Right. So going back to the discovery of this, what did you initially think this was? Initially, I thought it was a scratch, like a, an, an, an artifact, like a, a, a sort of a, you know, an error. A few pixels that had gone rogue in the uh, electronic image. Because that's what we often see. You know, these, uh, even with Hubble, the data are not perfect. There can be little errors left or problems after the data come down from the telescope. And so we thought that that was all it was. But then, you know, when we looked closer, this little straight streak just kept being there, even though we optimized our algorithms and tried to, uh, to, to analyze whether it was real or not. And then we went to Hawaii to uh, the largest telescope on Earth, the Keck telescope, to analyze what this thing might be. And that's when we found out that it's super far away. And uh, therefore, it's in fact very, very big. We thought it was just a small little little uh, scratch, but in fact, it's twice the size of the Milky Way, and it stretches across a vast region of space. Wow. And where is it going? I mean, <laughs> we understand, you know, that, that these super black holes would exist sort of at, you know, the center of a, a galaxy, essentially, which maybe this one once did, but it's on the move. Yeah. That's right. So it was uh, thrown out by, uh, by its host galaxy. Um, we actually can see where it came from because the streak is pointing towards a galaxy and exactly to the middle of that galaxy. And so that's, uh, that, that's where it flew out of about 40 million years ago. So we, can, we, we know where it, it came out of, and it's just heading out into, into empty space. It, it moved so fast that it was able to escape the gravity of, of its host galaxy. So that, that takes a very large velocity, which, which it has. Moving at about uh, four million miles per hour, which takes you from from Earth to the Moon in 14 minutes, <laughs> yeah. and that's fast enough to even escape the gravitational pull of an entire galaxy. So, what would create that or cause that? Yeah, that's the big question here. Um, and again, the the funny thing is, a lot of this was worked out in the in the 70s already. Um, this this kind of theory. And so, here's the story. Uh, the idea is that. Galaxies collide with one another, which we know happens. We are going to collide with the Andromeda galaxy in about 4 billion years. So, so that's something to look forward to. <laughs> yes, and then as galaxies collide, the black holes that live in their centers also come together. But they don't merge with one another. They, they form a very tight binary. So the two black holes start orbiting one another, just like the moon orbits the Earth. And then what can happen is a third galaxy can come along, also crash into this, you know, this train wreck, and leave a third black hole into the center, you know, of, of, of this galaxy. So then you have three black holes. And in dynamics, uh, two's company, but three the crowd. It doesn't work to get a stable configuration of three objects. One will be kicked out, at least one, maybe even more than one. Um, and we think that that might have happened, so that one black hole might be uh, might have been thrown out 
uh, by two other black holes. And so what would we expect to come of this? You know, now that it's been ejected, essentially, and it's hurtling through through space, essentially, what what's to become of it? Yeah, that's an interesting question, uh, because how often does this happen, right? Uh, are these supermassive rogue black holes all over the universe, maybe? Because yeah. now we can still see it because of the stars that it created in its wake. But at some point, it won't encounter any hydrogen gas anymore, and we won't see those stars being formed. And then it will be essentially invisible. So some people have speculated already before this discovery uh, that there could be many of these black holes, also a lot closer to our galaxy, uh, that we're just not able to detect. And that would be really, really fascinating and then slightly frightening, although, again, there's nothing, nothing to worry about. But the idea of all these... Uh, supermassive black holes just roaming around the universe. It's, it's certainly uh, fascinating. Oh, indeed it is. Absolutely. We'll leave it there, uh, Professor. Again, thank you for making some time for us here today. Really do appreciate this. Yeah, of course. Thanks. All the best. Take care. There you go. That's uh, Peter Van Dulkum, who's a professor of astronomy and physics at Yale University and just kind of noticed this by accident. And he was using the uh, the Hubble Space Telescope, which is still in use. Obviously, we now have uh, James Webb and definitely represents uh, an advancement. But um, this was announced uh, last week. Uh, more details are published in a research paper in the Astrophysical Journal Letters. Welcome back. A story that's partly about the power of nostalgia. And, and make no mistake, nostalgia carries a lot of power. We were having a great conversation on Thursday about uh, TV theme songs uh, of the past and just how much those still resonate with people. So that's one example. There does seem to be a lot of nostalgia tied up in, in what we eat and, you know, food we grew up with or more specifically treats we grew up with. Like still to this day, you know, if you ask, you know, what's your favorite chocolate bar, your favorite Canadian chocolate bar, you really get a conversation going. And people have strong opinions on those things. Of course, there, there are some of those that once existed that no longer do. And think about the reaction you see with something you loved as a child that went away and all of a sudden you go in the store and you see it on the shelf. That invokes quite a reaction. Uh, which leads to our next guest and, and the company uh, her and her husband founded. It's called Canadian Candy Nostalgia. And what they did initially was bring back um, a chocolate bar that was once popular and in this country had kind of gone away, what was known as the Cuban Lunch. And that came back and that proved to be a hit. Uh, they tried it again with another one, the Rum and Butter Bar which is kind of like a fancy or sophisticated version of the caramel. Again, another Canadian exclusive product that went away and they brought that back. Now that coincided with COVID and the pandemic and all kinds of disruptions in supply chains. Long story short, uh, this Alberta company, which is essentially a, a husband and wife operation, almost like a part-time or a hobby, uh, they find themselves with a um, surplus, shall we say, of rum and butter bars, a big surplus. 133,000 bars that have a best before date of June. Now, this is not, you know, a product that's suddenly going to be, uh, you know, poisonous after June, but you can't really sell it. So they don't know what to do with it, basically, and are maybe looking for some creative ideas for what could be done with 133,000 perfectly good chocolate bars. 
So joining us to talk more about that dilemma, more the backstory and all of this, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Crystal Westergaard, co-founder, co-owner, Canadian Candy Nostalgia. Their website is cubanlunch.ca, and you can find them on Twitter and Facebook as well, at Cuban Lunch. Crystal, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Let's go back a bit, first of all. This is about five years ago when you and your husband, I understand, started this company. And I remember when the Cuban lunch came back, and and that was a pretty cool story. People got pretty excited about that. So what was kind of the idea behind this company and and bringing back some of these names from the past? The uh, Cuban lunch we brought back because my mom was in nursing home care, and we really wanted to do we really wanted to do something special for her, and uh, we 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 brought back the Cuban lunch, and and it came back, yeah, to lots of people loving it. Mm-hmm. And what we've found is there's a there's a you come out with the bar, uh, you people find out it's there. That's the first key. But luckily, yeah. people in media like you broadcasted that, so that piece we didn't have to worry about. And then people knew it was there, and people rushed out and got it because they couldn't hadn't had it for thirty years. So so then those stores rush back to us and buy more. Now, at some point that ends because people figure out, wait a minute, I can get this every time I go to the store. I don't need to buy three boxes and freeze them <laughs> right. down like, right, like the world is ending. I can just pick up one or two every time I go to the grocery store. So there's an initial huge surge, and then, then it fritters off. So then we brought back my husband's favorite chocolate bar from when he was a little boy, and it's called the rum and butter. And I guess there were a lot of little boys who like to eat the rum and oh, butter yes. and pretend they're having pretend they were having a real rum. Yes. So um, we, I brought back his bar for him because he's such a good sport about the Cuban lunch. He went on, he went on TV and he nearly fainted, and it's not his thing at all to do that. And he did it all, and I just just felt so supported. So I thought I'll bring back his favorite chocolate bar from when he was little we brought back the rum and butter and that was during covid so it's harder to judge right the Mm -hmm. surge and then the fall and we obviously misjudged the fall of the surge because um the supplies were very erratic during covid the factories right could get people could not get people to come in and work and there'd be shortages of the oddest thing like wrappers and then they had come all the way from korea and if you remember all the tanker trucks were all stuck coming back from the orient so it was really um erratic supply and then we finally could make them and so they wanted to make a whole bunch that they figured we were back up um but we made too many like that i guess (laughs) that wasn't the, the backup was too much (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I would imagine at the best of times, this is a tricky uh, industry to navigate, you know, especially when you've got brands from the past, getting the rights to those, then finding, you know, suppliers and manufacturers and getting it all shipped. It sounds very complex, like I say, even at the best of times. Yeah, at the best of times, exactly, which we weren't in for no. sure. Um, but yes, it takes a couple of years to bring back each bar. So it's, uh, we had been working on it for a couple of years is why it wound up coming out in COVID. Uh, we would have probably not, you know, in, begun at something and brought it out during COVID had, right? But we didn't, no, no one knew COVID was coming. It was already, it was within six months of the finish line when COVID hit. Yeah. Uh, tell people about the, the chocolate bar. I definitely remember rum and butter. And, and yeah, it felt like, you know, a sophisticated version of the uh, the caramel bar. It had those those squares, uh, you know, the same way. But um, yeah, it was it was definitely a hit at the time. What do people need to know about the rum and butter bar? Why was it uh, your husband's favorite? Oh, I, well, tasty as all heck. And when when you were a kid, you 
you know, couldn't have rum for obvious reasons. <laughs> and so you imagine that you were, yeah, I don't know, a pirate and you're having to. I don't know. It wasn't my favorite bar, but boy, my husband, a lot of his middle-aged guy friends were really into it, uh, including his one friend who's now um, the cartoonist for Rick and Morty. Oh, really? And so, yeah, he's an Emmy award-winning cartoonist. So he's even done a fan cartoon about the Rick and Morty, uh, about the, no, about the rum and butter. Yeah. Uh, even come up with a little jingle for it. Everything's better with rum and butter. <laughs> so, yeah, real, real following among kids of his era. These, but these are like Canadian candies, right? Oh, yeah. They weren't anywhere else except I think there was a bit of a bit of a time when they were made by Cadbury, Ireland. Uh, believe it or not, Cadbury sees Canada as a sub-district of Ireland, if you can oh, really? believe that. Hard yeah. to accept. But there it is. And so I think that's um, one of the reasons why we get such kooky decision-making on our bars in Canada from Cadbury is it's not coming straight from the big mines at the head office in UK. It's frittered through Cadbury, Ireland. And then, then below them is, a guest Cadbury Canada. And yeah, they decided to discontinue the bar in 1996. Because I guess it was too low on the totem pole or something. All right. So you bring back the rum and butter. You, you mentioned the problems you ran into during COVID, which brings us to present day. And you have got an abundance of rum and butter bars. Yeah. Yes. I mean, the first year we sold over a million of them. So, I mean, wow. at least we didn't go over by a million. You know? yeah. So I couldn't have made a million at once. But, uh, yeah, so we do make them by usually at least 250000 at a time. And sometimes during that time we we're catching up in the backlog, they would strive to make like 300000 at a time to catch up. And that probably probably shouldn't have on hindsight. But, but at the same time, if we didn't make that number, um, the factories in Korea probably wouldn't even have shipped us the wrappers in any lower numbers during COVID because that was just the kind of days we were living in that factories were making those kinds of demands of little food makers like us. So we did make 330-some thousand, I guess, at one point. On the hindsight, that was too many. So the clock is ticking in a way. June is, I guess, the best before date on this candy. Mm -hmm. So you're trying to figure out what to do with all of this. I I imagine you've got all kinds of different uh, suggestions thrown at you. But where are are you at now? Well, we've had a few actual real charities that have a truck and can come and get them and they do this so we've had a couple step forward calgary food bank apparently doesn't take candy it's one of their policies i imagine it's because of lack of space i hope that's the only reason because really everyone even people go to food banks deserve some chocolate but um they can't take any but we've had other food banks in the area um come forward and say they can and some charities that work with uh, ukrainian refugees as well have come forward so we've had a couple um good leads yeah so you're still looking for some additional ideas or or help or some kind of a proposal you're you're still you're still maybe hoping for that yeah and if if you have something fairly concrete as much as i appreciate everyone's stream of consciousness it's probably not what i need in my day because i am working full time as well as this at a job that actually gives me an income which is being a physical therapist in my clinic so um i do have to wade through a lot of um, well-meaning uh stuff that's not helpful to get to the two or three gems of people who actually yeah they actually do work at a charity and they know what they're talking about and those are the ones we're looking for 
All right. So if someone's got a, a concrete <laughs> proposal, uh, mm-hmm. they can contact you, I guess, uh, either through the website, cubanlunch.ca, or, or through Facebook uh, or Twitter? Yes, you betcha. All right. And, and more, as mentioned, uh, at cubanlunch.ca. Uh, Crystal, we'll leave it there. Really do appreciate making some time for us here today. Thanks so much, and, and well, all the best you. with this. I appreciate it. Thanks. All right, there you go. Crystal Westergaard, co-founder, co-owner, Canadian Candy Nostalgia. So their website, as I mentioned, is cubanlunch.ca, which was the first one they brought back. And then the rum and butter bar. And so now they've run into this problem. What do you do with 130,000 candy bars? Now, here's the thing, right? I mean, they could give this away, sure. But what's the difference, right? I mean, they're at a loss here. (laughs) Throw it out or give it away. I mean, it's so I think part of the concern here is that well, if they're already taking a, a bath on this, do they want to take on additional costs to try to ship it somewhere, right? So what do you do with it? So there's that question, right? What do you think could be done with all of this? And it's interesting how some food banks would say, nah, look, you know, we don't do the junk food thing, which I guess you kind of get at some level, but still, I mean, you know, a treat now and then, it's nothing wrong with that. And there's also the other question too, which is, you know, why there's such interest in these names from the past? The uh, candy nostalgia aspect. Like, are there some that you remember as a kid that you wish would come back? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.